everybody. Welcome back to Wandering Into Wellness. How's it going? Um, today we are here with special guest Maria O'Sullivan, who is a lactation consultant, a mom of three little ones, and one big one actually, not so big. Mm. Two little ones and one bigger one, and also an extended breastfeeder. And we have her here on the podcast today to share her experiences of extended breastfeeding and why she made those choices and how it feels to do those things. Um, so welcome, Maria. Nice to see you. Um, So I'm really excited to have you here because we've been doing this series now on pregnancy and birth and beyond. And we've been talking to lots of different women now and lots of different experts in this time in a woman's life, especially. And breastfeeding was something that I really, really wanted to talk about because it's been an area that I kind of studied for a while before I had my little boy and I really had planned to extended breastfeed. It was the thing that I really was certain, sure, in my head, like that's the way it's going to go for me. And I really believed in the benefits of it. Um, and I had read so much about it. And then we had a really tough breastfeeding journey. And I really did everything that I could to try and continue to breastfeed. But unfortunately for us, we got to six months and then he refused to feed after then. And so we had tongue tie, we had latch issues, he had tongue asymmetry. Um, and we went to every different possible version of people. But also there was, whilst my partner was really supportive of the breastfeeding, there were a lot of people around us that were dissident voices, let's say, who when stuff was going tricky, when he started to lose weight, were going, give him a bottle, give him the bottle. And I found myself in this really vulnerable situation where I was really sure that I wanted to continue and there just wasn't another option in my head, but there just wasn't enough people there who were actually present on the ground showing me what to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And it was, it's really one of the hardest things I think I've been through in my life was giving up breastfeeding because it was just, it was like part of the identity of who I wanted to be as a mom. Um, and so I'm really, really interested to have this conversation with someone who has managed to do it and has made those choices because anytime that I talked about it with people, I was often met with resistance or people saying, well, why would you want to do that? Or that's a bit strange. Or why would you breastfeed? Sure, you got to six months, that's great, you know? And so when I was disappointed and I felt hurt, um, by the feeling that I wasn't able to do that. I felt like a lot of people around me didn't understand why that would have been because they saw it as like, brilliant, you got to six months, sure, that's what you would do, right? Um, so I'm really interested to know, like, you have three kids, did you always know you wanted to extend a breastfeed? Was that something you were always planning to do or was that something that just kind of naturally occurred as you went through your parenting journey? Um. Well, first of all, um, I'm really sorry that you only got you only got your your six months, especially when you had a longer goal in term, you know, in terms of what you were thinking for yourself, like and that you didn't get the, the support that you needed at the time. Thank um, you. That's really hard. Um, so did I always intend to extend the breastfeed? Yeah, yeah. I guess I didn't know the, the term extended breastfeeding at the time, though. Um, I, I I grew up in a family where there was lots of babies and nieces and nephews and children, lots of children. So I was always very kind of comfortable around babies, but I'd never seen anybody breastfeed. I think the first time I heard about breastfeeding was uh, <laughs> Royal Connection, Princess Diana breastfeeding her kids. I was uh, really into Princess Diana when I was a little girl. And then, yeah, I know, yeah. And then I think uh, later on, I think um, there was a scene in The Snapper where um, Sharon breastfeeds her baby. I think that was another scene. And then I started working in a play school in Cork City called Wallaroo Play School. 
and all the mums in the play school were breastfeeding. They were having their babies at home and I was 19 and I just got landed into this culture bubble, really. And uh, it, it, it just looked really, it just looked really natural, I suppose. And it just seemed um, really easy and the kids were really happy. I could see the kids were really happy and they had lovely connections. And like in the play school, and it probably wouldn't be the same these days now, but the mums would have breastfed. And I always remember one mum, she uh, she was pregnant and she was still breastfeeding her little girl at the time. And uh, then when the baby was born, she came back into the play school and her little girl um, was having um, difficulty letting her go. Um, and mum was completely fine with it. And where, where I worked, they were completely fine with her staying with her child as well so she was with her little girl and she was breastfeeding a newborn and the toddler was also feeding and I was just like wow this is amazing and um so then when I got pregnant myself um there was kind of no doubt in my mind that I what I was going to do I was like oh yeah I'm going to breastfeed and I'm going to have my babies at home so those were very kind of concrete decisions that I made mm. very earlier on and I also had read a book called The Continuum Concept by Jean Liedenhoff. And it just kind of blew my mind away. Like um, reading about, um, she, um, she went and lived in, this, in South America for like two years, I think it was, and um, was, a, was a tribe of people. And they were just really into, uh, obviously very primal, you know, they really, followed their gut and they carried their babies all the time and it was the carrying and the, the idea of the continuum after birth then breastfeeding came next placenta came out then breastfeeding came next uh, it was kind of like the placenta came out and then the breastfeeding um replaced the placenta and that place where your baby grew and, and uh, you nurtured your baby and you held them so I had all those ideas in my head as well like um, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I guess it, it was there from the start, like it was a very kind of clear decision for me to make. Did you have, what, what age were you when you had your first child? 27. And did you have support around you in terms of family members or your partner or anything like that? Were people also really progress feeding or was it just you kind of holding strong in this belief that you had? Um, so those mums that were in the school, they, they kind of became like my, my first tribe, as you would call it. I would, have, I would have hung out with them. I became friends with them before I became a mum myself. Um, and then some of them were pregnant at the same time as I was pregnant. So we were kind of going through the pregnancies together as well. Like, and um, so I had, the, I had their support and I found an amazing home birth midwife and I had her support. Um, I, had, I, I wasn't much... Um, my partner when my first daughter was born. Um, so I was kind of pretty much a, a single mom from the start. Um, but that, that didn't even kind of come into the equation. I didn't think, oh, because I'm a single mom, I won't be able to do this. I just mm. thought, I'm just, um, this is what I'm going to do. And um, I, I think having the home birth really helped me as well though, because that continuum wasn't broken. And I suppose that idea of the continuum was so strong in my head. Um, that the home birth just kind of really fed into it. 
and just mm. being in my own space and midwives were amazing and uh, they really supported me and how I wanted to birth and it was a long birth. <laughs> um, and it wasn't easy, like it wasn't an easy, but I say it wasn't an easy birth. It wasn't an easy birth as in it was long and she was overdue. And, you know, I could have, I could have ended up in hospital, but I didn't. Um, and yeah, I don't know, even like that first night after she was born, like it wasn't like the perfect start. It wasn't like she did the breast crawl um, because what happened after she was born was I, I had a postpartum um, hemorrhage, but it was a very small one. So I didn't need to be transferred or anything. but. So she didn't feed straight away, but it didn't. I, I they weren't concerned, and I wasn't concerned, and they left, and I was left with my baby. And then when she did want to feed, I we just started feeding, and um, like I mean, I had sore nipples and all that at the start, like everybody else, um, and uh, that kind of passed. And yeah, it was it was just it just kind of made sense. It was just. Um, and did you have a notion? Sorry to interrupt. Did did yeah. you have a notion at the start when you were breastfeeding her, like? maybe a target in your mind of how long from what you'd read from what you understood of, of how long you would like to have you like to be breastfeeding or were you kind of just like I'm just going to do this until it stops or like what was in your mind at the start I'm just going to do it till it stops yeah okay. yeah I'm just going to go with the flow it just it kind of fed into all my kind of ideas around parenting breastfeeding was parenting to me because it met my baby's needs it meant uh, I was following her cues. So I was learning how to be a mom with her cueing me because by her, it was kind of like, you know, like a response. It was a responsive thing. So when she cue me, I'd respond. Then she was learning to trust mm -hmm. me. It was, you know, I, I didn't get stressed because she wasn't crying. I carried her all the time, uh, which a lot of people don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit, uh, a bit crazy, like some of my family, like they thought that child will never walk. <laughs> and and tell tell us about that. Did like did it like when when you did put her down or whatever? What like how did that transition go? Was that was that difficult for you or for her, or how did you decide to allow that to evolve? Or was it again? Was it just very natural? And if so, how how did it become apparent? Um, I I suppose I saw carrying her for the first six months until she could kind of, I, I think I remember reading about, I think it was like a, a, a Bali ceremony where they have like these grounding ceremonies for babies. So once the baby gets to like about six months and they, they can start to kind of crawl off your lap or they're looking for more floor time, then they, they do it naturally. But, but it's on their terms. Mm -hmm. And I just think I felt that that in arms phase is so important for babies. Like I see parents struggle with it all the time. You know, they, they read so much into when they put their babies babies down the baby starts to cry they think is the baby hungry is the baby wet oh, is my milk supply low um what am i doing wrong you know there's all these thoughts going on and then i i always say to parents but what happens if you just let the baby sleep in your arms do they still wake up are they you know are they doing the same behaviors as when you put them down and they say, no, they'll sleep in my arms and it'll be fine. And I, so I, I, that in arms phase is so important to babies. Um, I, don't, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's talked about enough in Western society um, because, you know, there's all these other things that we get to put our babies into. And when all they really need is our arms, that's where they... That's 
and grow. So speak to us about, like, is there a sense of sacrifice in that? Because I think most, I, I could be really wrong, I'm not a parent, but my, my, my instinct is that most parents have, you know, a buggy, a sling, a bouncer, you know, those sorts of things, because there is a sense that they have their own lives or they have other things to do and they need their hands. Like, was there a sense of sacrifice? Was there things that you had to say, OK, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to have my baby? Like, what, how, how did that feel? I think the word that came to me was surrender. Mm. That was the that was the word um, that came to me. You know, I'm just going to surrender to this because it's so much easier when I surrender. Um, you know, I, I I didn't have that kind of pull and push between us. We were just we just kind of existed as one. But it didn't stop me. That's the thing. I think that's again kind of culture and society and um this idea that you know if if you're carrying your baby all the time or if you're responding to your baby all the time that you won't have any life yourself but i i didn't feel like that i i went out i met friends i i i used to go to concerts in the evening i went to music festivals i just bought her on the journey with me and that's where you'd see in a lot of tribal societies as well like you just kind of get on with it well, maybe I just mm. have a tribal mind. I don't know. But it just made sense not to have okay. this separation. And, 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 but then we did separate, like, but she was ready for it and I was ready for it. And she toddled off to the play school that I used to work in. Um, and, uh, and she's, she's very independent now. She's 18. <laughs> mm. it, it kind of, it, it resonates in so many ways, what you're saying this idea of the separation, like in the same way as in Western society, we've sort of developed this culture of work where we earn this money to help us to go on holidays, to run away from the life, <laughs> from the things that we're creating with the work we do. And like way, mm -hmm. the way we've diverged, like foods and medicines, we put them in separate categories, all these kind of separation things. I, I love what you're saying about that integration, that kind of wholeness around it. It just sounds very like honest and very like nice and intuitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah like I was I was really lucky as well though I had the idea of the village in my head so even though I was I was a single mom I was 27 uh, as I said I like I had a lot of mum friends and family friends um but I I learned to ask for help I put things in place like before I had my before she was born like I did a, like a, a mother blessing for myself where I gathered all my my friends and said this is what I need I need food I need you know I need practical things and again I think you know it's that that whole idea of western society as well is you know when when people come around to help you they're I'll hold the baby while you <laughs> while you do the practical things you make me a cup of tea or you can do your washing or whatever you need to do again it's kind of creating that separation instead of actually really helping the, the family to uh, to grow in those first kind of three months by really supporting them. Our society kind of, you know, kind of creates barriers in a way like. Yeah, I think it's really the pressure. And I think, I whilst I think that more and more people are speaking out about it and there are more great sites online and people's pages on Instagram and this kind of stuff where great mums are talking out about like, this is the realities of it and these are the things I'm struggling with and here are different ways you can do it. I think there's lots and lots of that now, but I do think that I'm not sure that the pressure on mums is getting easier. I think that that separation thing is actually just getting worse and worse. Like there really is that feeling of a pressure of, 
like I remember when Ruben was really little like the first two weeks or something and I just didn't leave the house and I just stayed in bed and I remember the second Sunday so two weeks in we went downstairs and that was like a big deal like we went downstairs and had a meal and then we went back up to bed again and then I remember the first time we went out and we went into a park and meeting some other mums who had babies and their babies were in the buggies and I had him in the sling Mm-hmm. Um, because he wouldn't have gone in a buggy, never went in a buggy, never went down. It was just like sling was the only way for him if we were walking. Um, and I remember them, me saying to them, oh, like, how old are your babies? And they were like three days old and like just out, off we are. And they were there like fully dressed with their three days old baby. Like, and there was this sense of like, not just we're so proud of ourselves, which obviously is like if they felt great and that's what they wanted to do, great. But there was that sense of like we we got up and out and got dressed at three days, you know. And mm-hmm. there was that feeling of society kind of going like we should like, wow, did you see that mom? She's so natural. She had her hair done and she was going out and doing the stuff at like one, two, and three weeks, and she did such a good job of that. And for me, listening to it, it was like it's so hard then to hold your own in your own space of going well actually what feels normal for me is to do less and Mm -hmm. to stay still and to not get dressed because you start to then go geez am I failing now because like I haven't washed my hair in ages and I'm just like lying around in bed and I think then the partners often can get a misconception because the what they're seeing in television and on the news and all these things is women who are doing it all and having it all and then if their partner's just going well actually I want to lie in bed for 40 days and do this rest and do this fourth trimester thing that they're kind of somehow being lazy or being less than and I think that that's this disparity isn't it because we see from all the tribal cultures that there's this natural resting period this 40-day period that's honored in in so many societies around the world but in our culture and, and even worse in America there just isn't an allowance for that. It's just all the honor, all the kind of accolades are like how quickly you can get back to your pre-baby body and your pre-baby routine and the way that it was before and get back to the normal, like all these things that we're hearing now, like a lot anyway, in the media, it's the same things are put on mums. And I don't know how, how do we begin to change that? How do we begin to give the permission of the understanding that the other way is there and it's possible? Yeah, I think it's it's really about modeling uh, mm-hmm. because I think that I think for me, that's what I saw. And like, I mean, when Freya was 10 weeks old, I discovered literally I'd heard about them while I was pregnant, but I hadn't gone. And and then I found another tribe with a lot of the mums that I was friends with were going to literally as well. Um, and there I felt like, you know, you, you do have permission to just be yourself um and follow your instincts and people will you know validate those choices you're making um uh yeah i i don't know like i mean three days <laughs> that, that horrifies me because i remember my midwife wouldn't even let me go down the road um to, to collect to collect freya when aurora was like uh, five days old i said i remember saying to her i think i might go to the school today and collect she was no 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 you were not going anywhere <laughs> we already had a baby five days ago um you know and so i think like i suppose home birth really honors that as well like like when you see those midwives of work they really honor that they really honor you know and and they help the partners to understand as well that women need to to rest after giving birth i suppose because there are so many different transitions with going into hospital you know you you leave your house as a couple and then you go into the hospital and you leave with a baby so there's like the transition of going into the hospital mm. 
journey to becoming a family and then leaving together as a family and then going back into your home. So there's, you know, this kind of a lot of um, um, kind of breaks in that continuum as well, like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and whatever then happens within the hospital as well, like, I mean, that really kind of can set you up, really can set you up. I mean, people talk about breastfeeding all the time and breastfeeding rates, <clears throat> but until we get the hospital part right, we can't fix the breastfeeding rates mm-hmm. because a lot of stuff happens in that first three days, you know, after the birth. And if the, if the mum has been traumatized due to the birth and if that's not validated and it's not heard, um, if she's not strong enough to say when somebody says, you know, do you want to, uh, uh, us to take the baby away and so you can get some sleep, then they think that's that's normal and they think oh well I should do that well if the nurse or the midwife is saying that then I should do that and then they'll say do you want us to give the baby some formula so you can sleep and then that's added in as well so then you know you're in this kind of cascade of more intervention and more kind of um, the break of that continuum again then. But what feels like support in the moment. Yes absolutely Yes. Which is problematic because it's a really, really, really good disguise, <laughs> unfortunately. Yes. yes. And like I know hospitals are not set up like, you know, home births, but I just feel like that, that that's like a big part of the puzzle that mm. really affects the start of the breastfeeding journey. I think and it's huge. I, I think it's really huge because I, I had a home birth, but at the very, when his head was already like out, I had to transfer to the hospital. Wow. It was a funny time when I was having the home birth because the private midwives were being kind of, there was a little bit of an attack on the on the home birth midwives. And so everyone was slightly nervous about stuff that was going on. And so there was, his heart rate dropped at the very last minute and it had been very, very steady and my pushing phase was very long. And mm-hmm. so we transferred just to be sure. And actually it turned out it was fine. He was born like within seconds being in the hospital, but then suddenly I was in the hospital and I, again, was totally unprepared for that mm-hmm. because I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to the hospital. That's not in my plan at all. Um, and I remember just, even though I knew that I was going to breastfeed, that was how it was. And I felt comfortable to do that. I hadn't thought of any of the other things. When I was there and my partner had to go home, I had to leave and suddenly I was in this room on my own in the hospital where I hadn't planned to be and I had none of my stuff because we didn't bring any, I didn't even bring a nappy or clothes for the baby, like we just transferred. I was just lying there and then I needed to go to the loo. And I was like, well, what, what do I do? Like, where do I put the bit? I just like, I've got to walk all the way down this corridor to some loo that I don't know where it is. And I have this baby and what do I do with him when I get there? Like, mm. how do I, what do I put him down? Do I wipe my bottom? I just like couldn't figure it out. And then I kind of staggered out into the hallway and there were all these bassinets outside people's rooms with their babies just in the hallway. And I was like, what? And a nurse came up and said, oh, do you want me to take your baby? We'll just put them in the bassinet in the hallway and then they can just sleep there while you go in and get some sleep. And, you know, you're in that moment, you've just given birth, it might have taken, mine wasn't super long, it was like nine hours, but you're exhausted and you're alone. And like, if you weren't really secure in the decisions that you were making, if you hadn't really spent a lot of time researching them, you would have been like, gosh, that sounds really nice. (laughs) Like, please take my baby so I can go to the loo and then go back in and all you want to do is sleep. You're just like, please, I want to sleep. Yes, thank you so much. And so if you, you're met with that in that moment, and I knew that I could I could feel that feeling. And then the same thing if you're then struggling with breastfeeding and they're like, sure, here's a bottle. And if you're alone and you're there and your nipples are sore and you're tired and you're just thinking, 
yeah, anything, just like anything to give me that space. And so if that was instead met with here, how can I help you to breastfeed? Let me set you up in a really cozy position. Let me bring you a drink. Let me bring you a tea, you know, all these, let me show you how it can be done. You take that option, but you're just taking whatever the option is that's given to you in that minute. And that's the thing about the support. And I think in the same way that we know that kids, the first six or seven years of their life imprint their behaviors the rest of their lives, I think those first few days are so crucial in mm. how you imprint your abilities to mother, like your, mm. your feelings of confidence in yourself and your trust. And I think, you know, I had this home birth. I still in my head, I feel like I had a home birth because like I birthed him all the way till his head was out at home. So in my head, I still had that. But I could feel that my confidence was undermined like a tiny bit because I'd had to transfer. Mm. You know, there was that feeling of like, well, did I quite do it? myself like maybe I needed a bit of help and I think if you were there and you had an episiotomy and forceps or you had to have an emergency section and you had that feeling of you needed someone to help you to birth your baby you're already setting up yourselves in this way of like I need a sit like I can't really trust my body I can't really trust myself and that's when you really need like triple support of people going you can do this rather than here's the other way you know mm. yeah yeah, and I think as as you know, as mothers, as women, we forget that we've carried these babies for nine months. I mean, literally, we've carried these babies. We've been minding them every single day, you know, since uh, gestation, and uh, and then it's kind of like, oh, it's that separation. We're really not sure what how to deal with it, or you know, it's it. We forget how much we've been doing and how mm -hmm. how we've been keeping them safe, and we've already been nurturing them. Um, and then that separation comes in and then the, the you know, the, the kind of the undermining happens and then the, the confidence goes down. And if, you know, if obviously then there's like the, the physiological response, if, if the birth didn't go the way we wanted, then the oxytocin isn't flowing and then the milk isn't flowing. And so then it kind of, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite hard for mums, like, you know, it really is. It's, um, and, and then babies, babies are little stone age creatures. <laughs> I mean, when they're born, they're, they're not born into the world. We think they're, you know, they're not born. Yeah, into the that's world a really interesting point. They're mm. not born mm. into the world we are living in. They're born into this world where they're complete primal little creatures that still need us as much as they did when they were like in utero, at least for the four, first three to six months, I would say six months, you, you know? Um, uh, they don't they don't think about oh that's a really nice fancy bassinet you bought for me or they just think oh I don't feel right I'm in the space net I'm terrified and I need yeah. to have in arms I need to be held that's where I feel right yeah and so can you t speak to us about about the differences in terms of so to get back to the breastfeeding thing did you like did have each of your kids had a similar term of breastfeeding and have you seen similarities or differences from one to the next in terms of your experience with them or their experience of it? Um, so when uh, Freya was about three and a half, I got sick and I ended up in hospital. Um, and it was kind of like our first big kind of separation. Um, and so I, I couldn't feed her no longer. So she had an abrupt weaning. And... Um, and that was really sad. It was sad for her, and it was sad for me because that, those choices were taken away from us. Um, but I was really sick. I uh, I was in intensive care. I had perforated ulcer. It just kind of came on all of a sudden, and yeah, it was really like yeah, 
so I was like in hospital for about a week and when I came back out she didn't really ask for it anymore and I was so uh I was like I was down to like seven and a half stone like so like the milk just the milk was gone there was no kind mm. of like if I'm if when I'm when you're when I'm talking about it now I'm thinking back like I didn't think about do I need to express there was none of that like gone. You know, it was just gone like my body was oh, gone the shock um the shock mm. of the whole thing and uh and for her like she used to get like we would have still been attending La Leche League meetings because by then I was a uh, leader applicant and uh, on my own journey to becoming a leader um and you know, when she was five, five, like, you know, she would say she felt sad when we'd be doing, you know, uh, if you've ever been to a literally meeting, Lydia, you know, we do an introduction and you talk about, you know, your breastfeeding journey. And she said she, she used to feel sad when she heard me say that, you know, we had to wean at that age and it was, you know, it wasn't a choice. And um, and then a couple, a couple of years later, she, she was, she, it was like she was kind of holding on to that sadness. And it did affect her. And then she talked to her homeopath about it. And it really helped her release it. Mm. Um, but if she 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 did feel it like she because it was just so abrupt and it was taken. Yeah, the sickness, of course. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then when Xavier came along, um, I remember she said to me she, at the time she was nine, she was, You're not breastfeeding him longer than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Oh well, he kind of exceeded it. He was—he uh, had his last feed on his sixth birthday, so uh, I did. Okay. I did, and I—I um, I, I pretty much did the same things again, and they worked really well for me. Um, yeah. He—he uh, he was uh, six when he weaned, and uh, his sister came along in the middle of that when he was three and three, three and three months, I think. Yeah. Mm. and uh so then i was tandem feeding them for three years um and uh that was that, was, that must have been tough was it oh it wasn't it was did you still keep going out to music venues and concerts at that point come <laughs> on <laughs> no way <laughs> yeah but i moved on from that phase of my life I, okay. <laughs> well i don't really <laughs> yeah it was it was it was different so like because there was nine years between him and Freya, he felt like a first baby again. So I was doing a lot of those mm -hmm. really kind of easygoing things, bringing him here and there, and she would have been in school and I would be going to meetings. And um, so and so we still had that lovely kind of um, village of people around us. Oh. And uh, like when I had Xavier, uh, as I was saying earlier, I, I chose to have, have him. Because uh, um, I I went for um, donor conception, I decided I wanted to have another baby, so I went ahead and did that. And uh, I I did the same things again. I had my midwife, same midwife, and uh, I you know I made sure I had my village created and made sure people were bringing me food and supporting me all through that. And um, I don't know, it, I just went with the flow again. Breastfeeding him seemed like the best thing, and. I, actually what's what was really important for me as well is that around 18 months the immunities in breast milk go back up as your child goes out more into the world into you know they might start play school at around two um so like those immunities and antibodies and protective factors and all of that and and the security element it's all still there so that was another factor actually that when I was 
um, breastfeeding Freya as well, I knew about that. And I just really saw that as, you know, such a fantastic support as well. Mm -hmm. To me, as a single mom, like, I don't want to be going to doctors and all of that. And we hardly ever did go to the doctor. She's mm. always really healthy and they've all been really healthy. But that was another factor as well for me. And um, and, and the play school they went to is the play school I used to work in. And I would have also breastfed them as a protective way of keeping them healthy at play school. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those were some of the, the big decisions as well, I guess, I met around extended breastfeeding. Can you speak to us a little bit about the rhythms in the day when if you're like tandem feeding and like what's their food and diet like and is it you know is it just added to it breast milk is some of it replaced like how does how does that go in terms of diet and like you know keeping them fed and making sure you've got enough time for yourself because obviously you're conscious as a human that you as a single mom only have so much of a resource of energy for all these things, for breastfeeding, for being a mom there, for being there emotionally, physically doing all the work. Yeah. How do you manage those things and how do you then support them food wise? And like, can you speak to us a little bit about that aspect? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, Xavier was a great, great eater. He started eating at six months. And like, I mean, after like about six months, you know, when babies start to, to wean onto solid foods breast milk is still like 50 percent of their diet still like and for some it's 100 percent and 80 percent you know depends on mm -hmm. the child and their needs and what's going on for them but no he would have uh, always enjoyed his food so he would have like fed in the morning like i mean at up to about three he would have fed like a lot like he would have fed frequently you know i couldn't tell you how many times a day he fed I couldn't tell you any, like even when they were babies, how often they fed, like, because I just fed them. I didn't kind of think into it and think, oh, you just fed it half an hour ago and not feeding you again, or, oh, you shouldn't be hungry. I just fed them <laughs> because it just made the most sense, like, just to respond to them because they're, they're, they're looking, so. Yeah, I'm it's not about breakfast, lunch, and, and dinner. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and if they're looking, like, you know, that's the thing about breastfeeding. It's not just nutrition. It's like. Jack Newman says it's like 10% nutrition for, for that's how children see it. You know, it's, oh. it's about co-regulating as well. Like, you know, because when they're, when they are feeding, they're calm, they're relaxed. Um, so it's about co-regulating. It helps them calm down if they fall. It helps them when they come back to you, they want to reconnect, they'll feed. Um, you know, so it's, it's all those parts as well. Like, like the nutrition part is a bonus. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. You, you know, because when, when you're, you know, and, you know, if you're, if you're not feeding, I suppose, if you're not extended breastfeeding, there's, you know, your child is out of your arms a lot more. But when you're, when you do continue that relationship beyond 18 months and beyond, you know, up to two, three years, your child is in your arms a lot. So, you know, they're co-regulating in your arms they're coming to you uh, a lot more they want to sit on your lap a lot more there's they're getting all that like lovely sensory input as well like um and and that's still growing them and they still they're still having growth spurts i think that's the other thing people forget about like children have growth spurts my god up till they're 21 really but you know what i mean when they're small their little bodies are still going through so much. They're still processing so much. They're teething, they're growing. Uh, you know, they're they're like their social interactions can overwhelm them. And breastfeeding can, you know, bring that down for them. Um, 
when when they're away from you they come back they reconnect I was saying that I think it's interesting because I think I remember feeling with Ruben he had because he had tongue tie and his latch wasn't as good he would latch on very very forcefully but like superficially right so it was really I had like really strong vasospasm because of it um, but his feeds would be like an hour long it wasn't like 10 minutes or 15 minutes like I would see with my friends it was like an hour each time and by the end of the hour it was so sore like for me it was so sore that I just couldn't wait for that feed to be over and then it would be like oh god when's another one coming you know mm-hmm. and so I think when I and I think I hear that from a lot of women that they're just so touched out by the end of it and maybe really sore that you you have this feeling of out of controlness and touched outness and then you try to find some control by implementing routine by going mm. well they should only feed and you look at the books and they say well actually they only feed every three hours and you're like okay right so Right, I'm just not going to feed them again for the next three hours because that gives me a bit of a break and I get some space again. And, you know, it's really hard then when you're having those feelings to do what you're saying, because I remember I remember reading all about it and having the same thing and growing up in India and Nepal and seeing women carry their babies all the time in Africa and they never put them down. And it's like, cool, I had all the slings. I was like, I'm carrying them all the time. That's what's going to happen. And then the reality of it was really, really different for me. It wasn't the way that I had imagined it was going to be. And it was really hard. And he actually wasn't a baby who wanted to be held. He was like, get away. I want to be on the ground. And everything that I had thought that I was going to do just didn't work. It wasn't right. And I didn't have anyone giving me the alternatives other than people saying, well, that's because you need to put them on a schedule of once every four hours and that's how they should be feeding and you shouldn't touch Mm -hmm. them too much and you should create the space. And then as soon as that little gap of a insecurity in your parenting choices, but Mm -hmm. also the feeling of overwhelm and being like, I actually need a break comes Mm -hmm. in that's when you start to fall into like, well, I will do the routine and I will do those things. And, you know, and so I can, it's interesting because I'm listening to you talking and I'm like, yeah, and all of that makes sense to me. And it was all what I wanted to do, but my reality of that actually trying to do it just didn't go that way. And I think had I had, maybe had I grown up, was I living in a tribe somewhere and there was all these different women around me showing me all the ways to do or showing me what to do instead of me trying to call lactation consultants and they were too busy to see me for another 10 days. And, you know, you're going to these weighing things and they're telling you your baby's losing weight and you have the voices in your ear saying, well, maybe they're starving. You might be starving your baby. Of course, then, like, it's very hard. I don't, I don't know, you know, I didn't find that support system. And certainly the breastfeeding meetings that I went to, everyone was just sitting, having a great time breastfeeding their babies. And I was the one with this baby was like hitting me and scratching at me and screaming the whole time and refusing to latch on. And I didn't feel that support mm-hmm. from those people. And I wasn't getting it over the phone or from people around me. And I guess I would say like, I think there's probably a lot of mums like me or mums coming into it who weren't even as secure as me going into it. And then how are they meant to thrive in that situation? Because it doesn't feel natural and it doesn't feel easy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 very difficult, um, especially, you know, because like, I suppose I'm talking about quite, for me, very normal breastfeeding journeys. Like, I mean, you're talking about your breastfeeding journey was challenging because uh, Ruben had tongue tie and you didn't get the, the support you needed and, you know, and I know you didn't know where to go or or maybe how to ask or I suppose, and it's about being vulnerable as well, about being able to ask for that support. Mm. 
um, and, and, and I hate saying find your tribe, like, but <laughs> in, in a way it is like, um, I, I, I suppose this is my, this was my experience. Like it's not going to be everybody's experience. I don't know. I don't know. Was it because of the home births and just the ease of that mm -hmm. that helped? I my none of my kids had tongue tie or like I remember reading about in the continuum concept and thinking, all right, this would keep everything away. <laughs> because they talked about the fact that none of the babies had colic or they, none of the, I don't think they used the word reflux back then. The book was written in like 1975, but it was colic. They would have said colic because the, the babies just felt right. They didn't have to struggle or stress or they didn't have rashes or eczema. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a, a good plan. But it's, I think it's about going to, breastfeeding support before you have your baby as well you know uh, and I yeah. think sometimes people don't know that like groups like La Leche League um, are open to having breastfeeding mothers or not breastfeeding pregnant mothers come along and they completely are like I mean that's when they want you to come along and could you groups and friends of breastfeeding they want you all to connect before the baby's born like but I think people get so much into the birth that uh, you know they're kind of thinking, oh yeah, oh yeah this is how i'll feed the baby but then oh yeah but the birth is a big thing if we just get through the birth then we can move on to the next bit but as i said at the start they're a continuum the pregnancy the birth and the breastfeeding they're all you know they're they're kind of like the trinity <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah that's certainly true i mean i knew that it was a good idea to go to the breastfeeding meetings while i was pregnant i knew that but like i was so busy just trying to get my get into the zone of the home birth and trying to stay really present and doing my yoga and my meditation it felt like exactly that I was like yeah but it's gonna be I was like you know I'm gonna breastfeed so I'll go to those meetings and I'll breastfeed and mm, that'll be it yeah. and I think you're right had I gone to those meetings and I'd met the people first and I felt like I had a rapport with them already and I kind of knew them when I was in my comfortable space, it would have been a lot easier for me to go back there when I was really challenged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when yeah. you're going somewhere new for the first time and you're challenged, it, it's double vulnerable making, for sure. Yeah, yeah, because it's completely overwhelming. Like, I mean, when you turn up to a meeting for the first time and you're trying to get out the door and you're trying to get the baby out the door and then you're trying to get the baby out of the car and into the, mm. the buggy system <laughs> and the whole thing, like, and then open that door and all these faces turn around you and they're all welcoming and they're happy to see you like but it must be overwhelming like you know mm. for, for for moms um and if you know if you go beforehand you have the number of a leader that you might have connected with or or um or could you breastfeeding counselor you know that you've connected with on the day like and had a nice chat with that you can then go oh i'll listen to her text and ask her what she thinks of this and do i need more support or should i talk to an ibclc or you know and then they can kind of guide you as well but i you know i just think uh, sometimes women will ring me like because i still volunteer with lola actually and they go is it okay to bring the baby you know I'm like of course it is <laughs> but, but sometimes people hear the word meeting or something and they think it's formal or you know yeah. that it's something that's formal or they think when is the class on? And I'm like, oh no, it's not a class, it's informal. We just all sit around. Yeah. And have a it's couple. just a chat. It's like a circle. <laughs> it's, it's a, a woman's it's a woman's circle. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is a women's circle. And I guess I had that as well outside of Lynn actually with mum friends where we used to do potlucks and bring the babies. And it, it's kind of society as well making it um 
more easier for parents to bring their babies with them. Like, I mean, if you look at other countries like Spain and Italy and, you know, mm. they have babies and children with them all the time in restaurants and, you know, on the streets and the streets are safe for them. And, you know, and, and I'm not sure what their extended breastfeeding culture would be like, but, um, but, but it definitely would support it. And mm. I mean, I remember going on holidays with Freya like and breastfeeding everywhere. I never even thought about not breastfeeding anywhere. Like. Yeah. So so with all like the you know the statistical you know validation of breastfeeding and, and even ex and extended breastfeeding as well. I mean up, what is it up until two years there's mm -hmm. like significant proportions a lot of the micronutrients that are supplied from breast milk. There's disease risk reduction for the child, which is well established. Disease risk reduction for the mother, which actually we were reading about before the podcast in terms of breast cancer, but lots of yes, other diseases yes. as well. There's yes. so much there. So there's, but there's obviously still this kind of taboo element within Western culture, Irish society anyway, definitely. How have you seen changes in that? And how do you think we're overcoming it? Are, like are we overcoming it and if so what sort of steps are we taking then to kind of like to erode that I know like La Leche League is obviously a, a core part for you I can hear that and it makes sense but are there other kind of like tools and tactics from society other than having these conversations in public that can that can really improve this the state of the situation yeah so I think that the politicians are starting to wake up that was you know um that was another book I would have read very early on my journey as well was Politics of Breastfeeding by Gabriel Palmer. And uh, that kind of made my blood boil <laughs> when I read that. Ah. It also made me, you know, really kind of uh, activated the activist in me as well. Like, so I'm also involved with Baby Feeding Law Group Ireland. Um, and I think we have seen an upsurge recently in uh, politicians becoming a lot more interested in um, breastfeeding and you know there's the breastfeeding strategy that needs to be implemented it was meant to be implemented by 2021 which has been extended for 2022 but again what needs to underpin that is the baby friendly hospital initiative because like without everybody being on board to support the mums in the early days i mean the politicians can bring in all the the, the policies and procedures and, and say, you know, and they can bring in the code of, um, you know, it was the 40th anniversary of the code there two weeks ago of um, breast milk substitutes, the marketing of breast milk substitutes. Oh, yeah, oh, so there was there, Yeah, so there was lots of coverage. Um, Baby Feeding Law Group Ireland did a whole like, campaign around that with UNICEF Ireland, so UNICEF Ireland coming on board as well. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and there's a lot more politicians talking out, Roisin Shortall, Jennifer Whitmore, they're all kind of getting behind us. Um, but we also need to, you know, have that baby-friendly hospital policy where, you know, skin to skin is normal, not offering formula when the mum hits a challenge um, looking for the breastfeeding answer, finding mm. the breast solution to that problem. The answer is in formula, especially if the mother wants to breastfeed. I mean, the initiation rate is like 63%, roughly. Mm. And, I, and I think it's like half of that by the time they leave the hospital. So yeah. what's happening in those three days? You know, Whoa. the initiation rate drops then like. 
Because I was going to say 63% isn't terrible. That, yeah. I mean, that's not as bad as I expected, but it's down to less than half by the time they've gone out of hospital. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then it's down to 6% by six months. That was the latest finding. 6%? Yeah. That's very low. Wow, interesting. That's surprising for me. Uh, yeah. So, like, you know, and, the you know, the WHO recommend six months and mm. then following on up to two years. So that's like two and a half years. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because looking at the statistics, um, the in the UNICEF 2012 report, I think it said, in different countries around the world, they were checking to see how what percentage of mums were still breastfeeding their babies at 20 to 23 months. Mm. And like Bangladesh, it was 91%, Nepal was 20, 95%, Rwanda 84%, Malawi 77%. And yet there was no statistics or information about how many were still feeding in England, Ireland, America, Australia, New Zealand. And I think certainly I remember when I was talking, like when I was doing studying about this stuff, when I was doing pregnancy training, and I was talking to my friends about extended breastfeeding, and it was the first time that I had heard the notion. I knew that in Nepal, I'd seen people breastfeed their babies at two or three. I mean, I wasn't really thinking about the age, but it was normal. Mm. Um, but I hadn't really thought about it since then. And then when the concept was introduced to me and I would have been like 26 or something, I was thinking, oh, I feed a baby at like five or six. Like, how would that, how would that be? You know, it was, it was really strange. And when I read about mm. it, it said like, there's so many interesting statistics. Kelly Mum was talking about the breast milk, what breast milk contains for a baby of 12 to 23 months. So she was saying in 448 mils, 94% of the B12 amount that a baby needs is there, 60% of vitamin C, 75% of vitamin A, 43% of their protein needs. And the WHO said that just a modest increase in breastfeeding could prevent up to 10% of deaths in children under five. I mean, those mm -hmm. statistics are, they're staggering. I mean, they, they speak yeah. for themselves. Yeah. But I remember when I was telling things like that to people, the overwhelming response I was met with was ultimately revulsion. Like people were like, ugh, yeah. that's so wrong. Like, why would you feed it? And especially yeah. if it was a mom feeding a boy, they were going like, oh, mm. feeding a boy baby. I mean, it's, I think there's like some kind of a, a notion that there's a weird sexual thing mm. that's like wrong, especially if you're feeding a boy that you're somehow sexualizing them or that it's sexual for the mom or, or some kind of a thing. And, I, that notion is it's it's still so prevalent because even just for a mom who's breastfeeding a small baby out and about you mm. get you still get like a lot of people giving you dirty looks or saying horrible comments to you mm. and that's with a, a little baby so then the idea that we accept that like a, a toddler would walk up to the mom or like a five-year-old would walk up to the mom and feed people are just like whoa I think that, like, how do we normalize that? How do we, like, it has to be, like, you need to see it on more TV shows. We need to see it on movies. We need to have, like, loads of these conversations that we're having, but just need to be had, like, all the time. And all the women who are feeding those babies need to be, like, talking about it and mm. showing themselves and going, like, here, I'm a normal person. I'm not doing something weird and perverted. I'm doing what I feel is best and what, like, the statistics say is best. Yeah, yeah. And and the other really interesting thing about like when you're you're feeding an older child, like the immunities are so much stronger because they're so much more concentrated in the milk as well. Okay. Like kind of mind blowing in a way, like, you know, because it makes sense. Like it's kind of like it's like what our bodies were meant to do in a way, like like the, you know, the um, Cassie Detweller, I don't know if you came across her in your studies, but she she wrote a lot about and looked at um natural term 
nursing and she kind of looked at uh, she looked at primates she looked at chimpanzees and then she kind of correlated it with uh, humans um with the, um, the eruption of teeth um and mm. um kind of came to the conclusion that between two and a half to seven years is that window where children will wean and they will wean naturally as well so i i know a lot of friends whose children have weaned between six and seven mm. um so that would be kind of and and across different parts of the world as well like the, like where you mentioned those would be kind of similar age groups if you came across that lydia um yeah um how do we normalize it but well, yeah that's that's a bit tricky but i suppose as well children will naturally create their own boundaries and we will kind of create boundaries as well like and i guess society puts those boundaries on us as well um but like my youngest <clears throat> is um she's six she's nearly six and a half actually and she's still she still feeds and she loves feeding and uh, she'll feed in the morning and she'll feed to sleep at night and she'll feed when she comes in from school but she wouldn't dream of asking me when she comes out of school to sit down on the ground and, <laughs> and feed her because she's she's put that boundary on herself. And well, within the rhythm of her day, even like she kind yes. of becomes a little adult while she's by, by being in school, society kind of whatever affected her influence. And then by the morning time, that's all evaporated or nighttime. Even. Yeah, yeah. But she knows she's, you know, she's very clear when she asks to feed. She'll ask me to sit down. She said, like, can I have uh, can I have milk? She calls breast milk, best milk. <laughs> She's like, trying to sell me on it, like <laughs> keep feeding me, mom. Um, but she's like, she's like to, to us, it's it's normal. It's 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 what it's part of our family. Like my 18-year-old doesn't bat an eyelid. She has a boyfriend now, he doesn't bat an eyelid either anymore. Right. So I think you know, I'm hopefully educating the next um part of a, a generation. And I suppose that's it as well. Like I think, you know, like oh, all parts of um, reproduction should be discussed in school and and natural term breastfeeding should be talked about in school. Um, uh, you know, hormones and pregnancy and, you know, it should be kind of gone into a little bit more deeper, like more kind of culturally, maybe even as well. Like, um, and, 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 and then of course, in the realm of women's health overall, the overall picture of women's health, like, I mean, it's like um, for, every, for every 12 months you've breastfed, it's like 4.3%, uh, it lowers the risk of breast cancer. Like, I mean, so, and that's like over an extended period of time. So however long you've breastfed, all that together. And, you know, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, I lost my train of thought now. No, no, you, no, yeah, you know, you're absolutely answered yeah. the question in terms of yeah. how we, how we start to transition you're right it's a it's the templating mm -hmm. it's the like the demonstrable you know image of women breastfeeding around you know around other people around their kids around their kids boyfriends right all that sort of stuff just the normalization of thinking yeah to, like i think you make it sound so normal that it doesn't sound like a job of work to do when we're talking to you but then when you we stop this podcast we go back out into where we go oh yeah no no, no we still <laughs> that still has to be solved Yes, yeah, and yeah, you're yeah. dead right. It's education at the earliest stages. I mean, we just did a podcast this week on our ideas for an alternative sexual health program in schools compared to the template that's there now. Um, and 
blue sky thinking about what we would like to see discussed and how it might look. Um, and, and this is part of that though, isn't it? It's, it's education in terms of like, if when you went to your doctor's surgery, there was a poster that showed you breastfeeding length of times around the world and you were just mm -hmm. sitting in the waiting room and you were like, oh, hang on. So in loads of countries, they breastfeed till two. Just even mm -hmm. that being implanted in your head and being given validation by the doctor's surgery of like, hey, this is normal. Or if there was a statistics of like, this is what your breast milk contains at this age, or this is how much it reduces the risk of breast cancer. I mean, it says, we found a one that said, the New York Times published a 2009 study that said women with an immediate relative that had breast cancer, like a sister or a mother, if they breastfed, there was a 59% lower risk of premenopausal breast cancer. Oh, mm -hmm. So I mean, that's, that's a really significant reason mm -hmm. that doctors and midwives and breastfeeding educators would be telling people like, yes, it's brilliant for your baby, but nature does its thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's naturally there. If it's better for your baby, it's gonna be better for you and society and illness, yeah, and all absolutely. those things. And so the more we see those posters and, and like, it's up to us as well to do more posts on Instagram about this stuff. and you know people like you to try and spread that information mm. i guess isn't it yeah it's all about the kind of, go on sorry i know i'm just thinking stats you know you're talking about stats there and i suppose looking at how we could collect stats in ireland of mm. how many mums are breastfeeding there you know like if you look at um it's in the breastfeeding ireland facebook group like i mean there's over god i can't remember how many you know people are on that but there's like over 200 thousand i'm not sure actually but there's a large number because i like that that group was started by a cork mum and uh, i remember being like number 10 on that group <laughs> 10 <laughs> years ago 10 years wow. ago yeah and we all had like little babies and they're all going to be 10 year olds uh in january that when it would have started january uh 2012 it started and in january 2022 we'll all have 10 year olds <clears throat> but it's like about valuing it as part of breastfeeding because like even doctors don't value it if you go into hospital and you have an 18 month old they're like oh well you just have to wean you know it's just like you wean just wean and they don't think about your breast health they don't think about the social and emotional side for or the emotional side for the child they're just like just wean like simple just prove that yeah, yeah we need to you know we need to have stats and i don't know how we collect them maybe in the What's that? Uh, I can't think of the name of it. You know, the, where they collect census. Yes. Yeah. If maybe if there was a question on breastfeeding and that. Yeah, How long yeah exactly. We should talk to Holly Cairns about it. Truth. Yeah, yeah, truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's absolutely it. It's finding out the statistics, seeing what the terrain mm -hmm. actually looks like and knowing what's happening in the houses, what's happening with people, like what is actually going on and seeing that that that, that is a normal thing. And also, like you said, and we just touched on it there for a second, but I think just like in sexuality, and we talked about this with Sarah Sproul in the sexuality podcast, people have a misconception that the more you talk to your kids about sex, the more promiscuous they're going to be, which mm -hmm. absolutely does not bear out in the statistics. It shows you that they're more safe, that they're more well-informed, they have better boundaries around consent, that kind of stuff. And this is the same thing. People have an idea that if you're extended breastfeeding, you're somehow creating codependency mm -hmm. and children that are not independent. And the absolute opposite bears out yeah. in the statistics, which is you have much more independence and much more security <clears throat> within that independence mm -hmm. in those children yeah. because they've had all their needs securely met at home. And that's the information that people need to understand that it's not like 
a weird thing where mums are like, I must keep my babies close because I can't let go. Like no one's at five years old going, I really need this child, my five-year-old to be on. Like no one's thinking that. They're just going like this, I can see the benefits to my child, to their emotional health and their physical health. And these are part of the same choices as we make when we give our kid a smoothie in the morning. Mm. It's it's just the same. Yes. Yeah. 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 And actually when you talk about the independence, like my six and a half year old now, is just in the last month uh, said to me as we're going into school, I can go by myself now. Mm. And she's mm. been pushing me back a little bit further. I didn't, I didn't put that, I didn't say, do you want to go by yourself? She just said to me one morning, like, you know, so, you know, I can see that independence growing in her all the time. Like, and, and it's usually, I mean, we know, we know it from most of our relationships. The more you push somebody the way, the more needy and clingy yes. they become. Like we just, that's a human instinct in adults as it is in kids. So it makes sense yeah. to like not resist. And then yeah. allow it to progress in its own way, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 That's what I was saying about the surrender part. You know, when your baby is clingy, the worst thing to try and do is to try and stop them being clingy or try to <laughs> get away from them. But yeah. it's yeah. better to hold them closer. Yeah. yeah. You know, get her. It'll regulate you, it'll regulate the baby. Regulate <laughs> Amazing. Maria, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. I think we could probably go on talking to you for a really, really long yeah. time, but we shouldn't keep you any longer. Um, but if people want to find you, if they're interested <laughs> in you as a lactation consultant and your story, and I think we, you know, something we didn't touch on at all, um, which we were planning to touch on, but there was so much to talk about, was your journey to choosing to be a single mum through donor conception. And I think that that's a fascinating topic that lots of mums, I'm sure, are interested in, because I've got a lot of friends myself who are yeah. my age and going, well, hang on, maybe actually that is something I'd look into. Mm-hmm. Where can they find you? Do you have a social social media page instagram website that kind of thing yeah i'm on facebook breastfeeding journeys cork and i'm also on instagram breastfeeding journeys dash cork i think it is and uh i have a website as well um breastfeeding cork dot ie okay. and Perfect. um yeah i think that's it yeah. great listen we you're, you're in we'll yeah we'll put it into we'll the, put the notes yeah but thank yeah. you so much you've been a, you're an amazing resource and you're you're a really great example i think of of like really instinctive and really safe um parenting you know really like really genuine authentic honest human parenting so fair dues to you and, and thank you for coming on yeah thank That's you nice. thank you <laughs> nice one, take care uh so enough the last things to say just uh thank you to our sponsors and use us nutrition um our nutrition partners who produce a great shake for kids kids good stuff um which we really genuinely love lid uses it with her kid my sister uses it with theirs we have a lot of it obviously through through the hops like we recommend a lot it's a really good whole food nutrition uh to add to their diets we have clear light saunas as well for those of you who are ready to put a little hot box in your garden come and talk to us because we can get you discounts and uh yeah maybe you don't want to go back to gym saunas which probably won't be open for some time anyway um and, and and also to swivel to the to our partners who uh we, we record this little, on, on this little device so thank you to them and thank you more to maria thank you so much it's been a, a really interesting enlightening chat thanks and we'll see you all again soon bye bye